Hi, 710. Good to be with you all. You thought they were going to have really good speakers, so a lot of you came, so we've locked the doors. You have to endure. 710, you know, that, that's a great name, but what if you'd just taken it one more minute, Corey? 711. What if this was 711? They've already got a great little, you know, catchphrase, oh, thank heaven for 711. You could have Slurpee night, you know, but you might want to think about that. 7-Eleven. No? Need to pray for this guy? Is that what you're thinking? Uh, so you've learned a little bit about Jonah and Nineveh, right? Nineveh was a rough place. Uh, historians say it was full of violence. You think if you, if you lived in these days of uh, Nineveh, uh, there was no police. Uh, the king had his guards had a military, but you had no recourse. So if someone did something to you, you just had to handle it. So there was lots of violence. As we'll read in chapter 3, the king's big call to everybody is, let's stop the violence, because everybody was just taking revenge, their own personal justice, and it was a bloody, dangerous place. I lived in Nineveh at one time. Uh, it's called ASU. Uh, this is back in the 70s when the Earth's crust was still hardening. And uh, I was in a fraternity. So ASU had the meanest coach in football. That's what Sports Illustrated called Frank Cush. He was the meanest coach in football. He just slapped players around. One player finally sued him for it. Uh, Playboy magazine said that ASU was the number one party school in the nation for like five years running. We were Nineveh. Uh, you didn't really come there for an education. You came there to debauchery and football. And uh, I was in a fraternity on Alpha Drive, which was right next to the uh, football stadium and the basketball arena. And, uh, you know, once in a while you went to class and all the sororities were right there. And that was a key part of life. And I was the president of this fraternity, the SIGAP house. Any ASU grads here? Uh, good. See, good welcome of ASU. That, you're evidence of that. And uh, I knew that there was something missing. So I'm, I'm at ASU. I'm the president of the SIGAP house. I'm in student government. I'm a devil's advocate. I would go around to high schools and tell them why they should go to ASU and not U of A. Any U of A grads here? Nothing personal. We've made peace with that. Uh, so I was active, doing a lot of stuff. Uh, if you were a Christian, you were a real minority on the ASU campus. I didn't really even know that there were folks that took religion seriously. Uh, but I knew in my heart there was this big hole. And I was trying to fill it with... Uh, performance and uh, girlfriends and drinking and sports and all the things that the world says these are the things that will fill up the hole and uh, even as a young man I was starting to recognize it's not working and uh, so I had this great facade of uh, Sandy Joe cool and doing all the right things and living the good ASU life but inside hey ho nobody's home you know who am I and I would see people of courage and conviction or I'd see somebody on a movie and this character would have 
you know, these great qualities that I would admire and wondered, where does that come from? So it was on a Sunday morning. Uh, I'm in my dorm. I'm ill from too much fraternizing. I've got seven up and saltine crackers there by my bunk. And uh, the nerd of the frat comes into my room. And one of the things we prided ourselves at the Sagup House is that we were the unfraternity, so we would pledge people that weren't all just great-looking people. We'd pledge all kinds of weird-looking people and prided, our, prided ourselves in having weird people in our frat. And Jeff fit the mold. Uh, Jeff uh, was not tall. Uh, his voice was still changing. Uh, his complexion looked like the stuff in the boxes that we ate before we came. Poor guy, terrible piece of face complexion. Uh, he drove a Studebaker that his granddad had given him. He grew up in Tucson, so here's this guy from Tucson. He's coming to ASU. Drive, you don't even, who even knows what a Studebaker is? Anybody know what I'm talking about? A couple of you, yeah. I mean, they don't even make that car anymore. I mean, it's just this big old weird car. So, and on top of that, he's in the marching band, so he's always doing this. Always drumming all the time. Lunch room, always just drumming on your door, in the shower. He's just drumming all the time. And uh, on top of all that, he loved Jesus. Can you imagine? And he's a biology major. So he comes into my room. And, uh, Sandy, looks like you're not feeling really great. Did you know that when you drink too much, you kill these many brain cells, liver? But you have these many extra that you don't really need. And these get replenished and these die. But, and normally I would have just said, Patterson, get out of here. But I, I kept listening. And, uh. He said, Sandy, Sandy, if you died today, where would you be? And nobody ever just looked me in the eye and asked me that question. You know, if you died, where would you go? So I thought, well, I, I, Mom took us four boys to church, and uh, I know the information. I even got confirmed in uh, my denomination, so I knew all the information about Jesus as God's Son and died on the cross for our sins, and so I said, I'm, I'm probably a C minus. So God probably has a curve, right? Like my geography class. And I'll, I'm a C minus. There's guys in here a lot worse than me. I think I'll, I'll get in. Well, I know I'll get in. Well, how can you know? So he goes back to his room, comes back with a little uh, pamphlet, The Four Spiritual Laws. Have you ever heard of this little track? It has four points to it. Law one, God loves you and has a plan for your life. And I, I couldn't believe how that just hit me. Oh, I want to believe there's a God that loves me and has a plan for me because I don't have a clue what I'm doing. And I knew that the plan I'm seeing, which is go to college, get a wife, get a job, get a house, a mortgage, a car, some babies die. Is that it? Is that the dream? And so this idea that there was a God who loved me and had a plan was like, huh. And then the second law was sin has separated you from God. And I was laying in the midst of that truth, so I couldn't argue my way out of that. Okay, yeah, I'm a sinner, I get that. Uh, three, Jesus took your place on the cross. And I'd heard that, that he took my place. But it was the fourth law that I'd never really been confronted with, uh, that you must personally do something about him, that somebody can't do it for you, you don't get grandfathered in. And there's a verse out of the Gospel of John that says, as many as received him, to them, he gives the right to become children of God. Oh, so we're not all automatically children of God, but those who receive Christ, who trust Christ, they're the children of God. 
Sandy, you wouldn't want to pray this prayer with you. And it was like, friends, it was like the room got thick. And I had this sense that everything is about to change. I said, Jeff, I think this is who I've been looking for all my life. And uh, so we prayed the prayer. And for me, it's like I had these cables, these electric cables in my chest. Uh, part of my story, maybe some of you relate to this. Uh, when I was growing up, they didn't know much about alcoholism and the dynamics on a family. And my dad was one of those guys that could go to work and do well and then would go to the bar at four and we'd sit at the dinner table and didn't know was he going to come or not, you know, and all those lousy things that you go through. Uh, so I, I was the oldest of four boys in a home with an alcoholic dad. And if dad was here, he'd be happy for me to tell you he's come to Jesus and he's good with this story. So uh, being the oldest in an alcoholic home, you kind of, part of that's what was driving the performance and please everybody and keep everything cool. That was my job, just keep everything together. I was kind of the third parent watched over the other three. And the, the, the loss of that which is common, and some of you are from that kind of home, you might relate to this, you, in some ways your childhood gets abbreviated because you have to be a grown-up too soon. And you'll read in the literature on adult children of alcoholics, this is frequently the thing for them, is uh, they had to grow up too soon. So, uh, Jesus took whatever I didn't get and went, <coughs> I mean, the lights went on for me. It's like I've been wearing the wrong glasses, all of a sudden, I just, you're it. You're who I've been looking for all my life. Now I know I'm here. I remember going out that night looking at the stars and thinking, you made all this. I'm for you. What do you want to do with me? And uh, so I made some phone calls. I got mom and dad on the phone. That's in the old days when you actually had phones with a wire into the wall. And you remember those things? And uh, we had one in the bedroom in the kitchen. Mom and Dad, I want to get you both on the phone. And they thought, great, you're dropping out or your girlfriend's pregnant. This isn't going to be good. And I said, I, I don't know how to explain this, but I've asked Jesus into my life, and I think something's going to be different. I just want you to know. Mom starts to cry. Turns out Jesus had gotten a hold of her a year or two before, and she'd been praying for her family. So she got it. Dad, well, okay, well, you know, don't let religion screw up our plan. You're going to law school, right? No, no, okay. So I knew Dad didn't get in. Uh, called my best friend, uh, John Lynch, who was moved out of the frat then, smoking a lot of dope and wanted to be a stand-up comic. And he was like, why? Why'd you do that? That's just for people that need a crutch. You don't need that crutch. And uh, the funny part is a couple years later, Jesus saved him, and he's now a preacher here in the valley and uh, serving Christ, yeah. Then I, and I called my girlfriend first. I want to make that clear. If Margie was here, she'd be, hey, who would you call first? Yeah, I called you first. I called Margie first, and uh, she said, well, you're a Christian? Wait a minute. You're not a Muslim or a Jew. You, you're a Christian, right? You Protestant. And uh, four days later, uh, I watched the Holy Spirit crack her open, and she said, I, I want Jesus, and uh, that's who I've been married to for 46 years. So, great story. So, uh, Jesus, the point of telling you that is just you get to know me a little bit, but also uh, Jesus loves to go to Nineveh. Jesus loves to go to places where people would say, what good thing could come out of here? God wouldn't want to save this person. God wouldn't be interested in saving this person. So I, I don't know if 
you have someone you love and care about, but you've fallen into the trap of thinking like Jonah, well, if they're in Nineveh, they're a Ninevite, they're beyond hope. Uh, not the case. Hey, let's look in the scriptures for a couple minutes together. So the Lord came to Jonah the second time. The sovereign purposes of God. Jonah doesn't want to do the will of God. He hears the call. He says, I'm not going to do that. He gets on the ship. You know the story. There's a storm. The guy's like, what's going on? Jonah says, I think I'm the problem. Throw me off. They throw him off. And uh, the fish swallows him. And uh, unfortunately, everybody, when they hear the book of Jonah, they always think about the fish. Uh, It's really a story about the sovereign purposes of God. So one of the truths of the book of Jonah is, if you are God's person, you're his woman, you're his man, he loves you, he introduced himself to you, he caused you to believe and love and follow him, then the good news, bad news is, you can't get out of his will very long even if he has to break your leg. You know the great story of Jesus in John, uh, or, uh, Luke 15, and the good shepherd that goes and gets the lost sheep. And shepherds, when they got a sheep that kept wandering off, you know what they had to do? They would break its leg. It was a loving act, but at some point the shepherd said, you know, I just can't keep chasing you. I'm going to break your leg. And sometimes God has to break our leg. Uh, with Jonah, he had to provide a fish. Somebody might be sitting here and thinking, well, you know, that's a, that's a nice story. Isn't that just a parable? I mean, is it? It didn't really happen, did it? Uh, Nineveh is a real place historically. It was a big town. We see in the scriptures here that it took Jonah uh, three days to walk the city. So it was eight to 10 miles. It was a big, well-developed city, and you can look it up. Don't do it now, okay? Put your phone down. Yeah, unless you're looking at the Bible. Uh, but it was a real city. Uh, Jonah is a prophet. He's mentioned uh, other places in the Old Testament where God sent him to preach. So that all is true. But the fish story might throw you. And so Jesus, wonderfully, uh, in the gospel, in... Uh, Matthew 12, his, uh, the religious leaders are pressing him to say, give us some sign, give us some miracle, some sign that you are really the Messiah, the Son of God that you say you are. And Jesus' response to them is, the only sign that I'm going to give you is the sign of Jonah. So, oh, would Jesus talk about Jonah if he was just a fairy tale character? Just a made it. And he goes on to say, and here's the sign of Jonah. Just as he was in the belly of the fish for three days, so the Son of Man, Jesus, will be in the grave for three days and raised from the dead. So that's the sign for you and me. That's why we're here. That's why we, we believe this book and believe that Christ is here in this pray, place is because that tomb is empty. There's, you can't go visit the body of Jesus. And we know all evidence says there was really a Jesus of Nazareth. All the secular sources acknowledge there was a Jesus of Nazareth that was crucified in a, a Roman graveyard called Golgotha. And uh, they buried him, and there's lots of theories on what happened to his body. And the Jews spread a, you know, a rumor, the Jewish leaders, that Jesus was stolen by his disciples. Yeah, those 
those wildly brave disciples. Not one of them was there when he was being crucified, but suddenly they became Navy SEALs and steal his body away and uh, pull off the greatest, you know, thing, hoax that's ever been wrought in history. No way. No, because his tomb is empty, he validated everything he said. And Jesus, so if Jesus says there really was Jonah and he was really in the belly of a fish and just like he was there three days, he's a sign of how I'm going to be in the ground three days and raised again. So you, this is a real story. You're going to meet Jonah on the other side. That'll be interesting. Hope there's video in heaven, don't you? Hope you can go today in the IMAX. We're going to watch Jonah get swallowed by that fish. Come right over here. You know, I hope we can do that. Don't you want to see some of this stuff? Yeah, let me go. But it's not about the fish. It's about a God who loves you and is pursuing you. You are not that spiritual. Can we just establish that? You're just not that spiritual to stay after God like you want. I, I know you want to. That's why you're here at 7-Eleven. Because... Uh, <laughs> You, you want to follow God, but you just can't. You're sinful, you're fallen, uh, you know, you, you look smart, but you're not really that smart, you know, you, you make dumb choices. Anybody here made a dumb decision? Anybody here dated the wrong person at one time? Anybody here bought the wrong car? Oh man, I've got a couple of car stories. Fell in love with it, ignored the facts. Just do dumb things. If if your salvation and your discipleship and your walk with Christ is up to you, then let's just pack it in now. There is no hope. You are not that spiritual. You are not that good. But the good news of Jonah, the good news of all Paul's writings in the New Testament is he who began a good work in you is going to finish that work. And he could have added, in spite of you. Another one I love is Romans 8.28. Don't you love Romans 8? Anybody know Romans 8.28? Anybody heard of it? Wow. Okay, you better do Romans, Corey. You better get Romans. Man. These Romans 8. I mean, Romans 8, gang, Romans 8 is like a gold mine. I mean, Romans 8. Oh, no, we're in Jonah, but Romans 8. <laughs> and 8.28 says... God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and are called to his purpose. If you love Christ, if you are a follower of Christ, he is going to cause everything to work to good, even your stupidity, even your sin. You know, the great example in the Bible, David, is going to get preached, I think, uh, is it this Sunday or no? Another, another week out to Bathsheba? Where's Osue? Osue, when's David Bathsheba? It's 10 days out? Yeah. So don't miss that one because it's sex. So come to that one. Uh, <laughs> David and Bathsheba. So he's going to have an affair. Uh, he's going to cover his tracks by having her warrior husband push to the front line and kill. I mean, it's just, it's just dastardly. It's like a scene from The Godfather what David does, and yet out of that union will come Solomon. Solomon. So all through the scriptures, men do their worst, and God keeps doing his best. And he's going to do that with you. With you. 
That's the hope of Jonah, that even when God puts a call on your life and you go the other way, it may not be a fish, it, it might be a friend, it might be a job change, it might be a sickness, who knows, but God, God will have his way with you, dear one. You will not stop the sovereign king of the universe from having his way with you. You are not that powerful, you are not that good. You are too important to him. Jesus said, I bought you with my blood. I know all the hairs on your head. Now with Mason, that's not a big deal, but with others of you, hair is a big deal. Uh, he says, when you pray in the Sermon on the Mount, don't use a lot of words because frankly, Jesus said, I know what you're going to say before you say it. I mean, he's, he's got you. Now you're going to suffer. You've got to learn. Your character's got to be shaped and Suffering is one of the key ways he shapes us, but he will be with you in it, and he has a purpose in it. If there's no purpose in suffering, then it's all madness. That's why the Christian is the one who can live in these hard days. You live in some terribly hard days, dear one. This generation that's upon you, I think Jesus has such empathy for you. What you are going through, what, what you have to deal with in social media, You've been through this pandemic. You, you have so much that creates anxiety and uncertainty. And Jesus doesn't scold you. He doesn't judge you. He says, I get it, and I'm with you. I mean, can you imagine, you know, bringing old, old Moses up to our time in history? Just riding a car and pulling out a phone would make him pass out. I mean... The technology that we deal with, the information you get, we're, you're getting way more information than you were designed by your creator to handle. You are not supposed to know about all the suffering children in Bangladesh. You are not supposed to know about all the terrible natural disasters all over the planet. But it, sorry, too late, Facebook, Instagram, you're getting it all. And you don't think that has a debilitating effect on you? Absolutely. That's why you have got to learn to be quiet, without input, without a screen, without music. You've got to give your soul and your mind rest that you might find peace in his presence. That'd be my greatest gift to you. If this was my ministry, we, one of the first things we'd do is we would learn how to get out and stuff God has made and just be still and enjoy it. Just waste time in his presence with what he has made. That's the antidote for your generation. Oh, I feel for you. I feel for my kids, my grandkids. I got a cute little granddaughter, Heidi. She's three. Oh, she's just adorable. I know. Here we go. Another old guy talking about his grandkids. So her parents, she heard somebody goes to preschool a couple days a week so she heard somebody say oh my god so she you know what the kids do so one day at home she says in front of bonnie and josh her mom and dad oh my god she drops oh my god and they were like what did you say <laughs> heidi we don't say oh my god and heidi is a great little firstborn rule keeper so she got that rule so the other day at my house something happened i don't know what and i said oh my gosh Papa, no say, oh my God. No, Heidi, I said, God, Papa, no say, oh my God. 
don't know why I told you that, just because she's adorable. <laughs> How are we doing on time? Everybody still awake? Okay. Got a little. So, what happens in Nineveh? Jonah doesn't want to be there. Corey talked to you great about that whole, when we don't want to do what God wants. But now the story is about the Ninevites. So he goes with the Ninevites. He preaches. He says, you got 40 days and judgment's coming. One of the great truths of the Bible, one of the uncomfortable, hard truths of the Bible is God will judge wickedness. God will judge sin. If you have been hurt, if someone has hurt and abused you, aren't you glad there's a God who says there will be justice? Yes. But when you are the wicked one, you're not so psyched about that. Like me at ASU in the SIGF house. There will be judgment. God is the judge. He takes no pleasure in judging. He says that. I take no pleasure in judging the wicked. But he must because he's holy and he's righteous and he's good. and He's going to do the right thing. That's why we need a savior and we are delivered. That's another Romans 8. Oh my goodness, you guys. You got to jump in Romans 8. After Jonah, Corey, you got to do Romans 8. Uh, I'm getting this too far off track. Okay. <laughs> Romans 8 says, There is now no condemnation. <laughs> I, it's just too good. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So when you know Christ, you are not going to be condemned for your sins. Doesn't mean he won't discipline you. I have been disciplined many times by him but it was always for good. I always knew this is God. He's not punishing me. When you are in Christ, you don't get punished. The wicked get punished. The Ninevites are about to be punished. He punishes those who don't love his son. If you know his son, you love his son, you'll be disciplined, like it says in Hebrews, every parent who loves their kids disciplines them, but you're not going to be punished for your sins. You're not. That Christ took all that. Took it all. Took it all. So, Jonah tells the Ninevites, you guys, judgment's coming. you got 40 days. And they believed him. Look at that, verse 5. The people believed God. And so they called for a fast. And they put on sackcloth or rough clothes. They, they, it was wild. I mean, they, the king said, I just don't want the people. I want it on your horse. I want your oxen to have sackcloth. I want your dog, your little donkey. I want every animal. I want everything in Nineveh. I don't want to see anybody that's walking around happy face in their nice clothes. I want everybody sad. I want everybody with ash on their forehead. I want everybody in rough, uncomfortable clothes. I want everybody to show God we get it. We don't want to be judged. Wow. Wow. And God saw, and he didn't judge him. And chapter 4 is how Jonah responds so poorly, so immature. Uh, you, you know, if you think about it, we probably all have somebody, maybe even a group of people that we just don't like. And we really don't want to see them come to Christ. We really want to see them be judged. You know, I mean, I watched the, I watched the, the film again of 9-11 this Sunday, right? And you watch those planes coming into the tower, and you see the horror and the, the tragedy of people leaping out of the building, hundreds of stories in the air, and the firemen losing their lives. And, uh, 
at that moment in history, I was not praying for the salvation of those enemies. I wanted judgment on them. I get it, Jonah. Yeah, there are just some people that, for whatever reason, at that point in history, you, you're not excited about that person turning. That's Jonah's heart. But they turn. Everyone, the king says, turn from your evil ways, verse 8, and the violence, because we're a violent city. And I love verse 9. He says, who knows? See, they, the king has great theology. He knows he can't manipulate God. You know, there are preachers out there that will tell you, if you do these things, if you give money to my ministry, then God is obligated to give you money back. If you give money to my ministry, God's obligated to heal you. Or if you say this prayer or you do this, then God is obligated like God is, you know, there's these magic incantations that we do and we get God to do what we want him to do. No way. You will not manipulate God. You, God is God. And the king understood, even with all our wholehearted evidence of repentance, I still can't guarantee you, Ninevites, that God's going to turn. But it'll give us a chance. Let's see what he'll do. That's good theology. That's good theology. This picture, repentance, is a great word. It's a word that we've lost a little bit. Uh, there, there was a period of time in, among theologians that they felt like if we told people to repent, that that was a work. Like if I said to you, you want to come to Christ, well, you need to repent of your sins. And the thinking was, well, no, Sandy, it sounds like you're telling them they have to clean up their act before they come to Christ. They don't have to do anything. They just need to believe. Just look to him and believe. Don't tell them to repent because that sounds like they have to go back and clean up something. And so we took repentance out of the gospel. And we said to people, just come to Jesus. He loves you. He died for you. Just, don't you believe he died for you? Okay, good. You're, you're saved. And there was no repentance. There was no facing their sin. There was no action to, to give life to their faith. James. What's the great line from the book of James? Anybody know the book of James? Anybody happen to stumble across it? Anybody know it's in their Bible? Anybody know? Okay. Uh, in James, the byline is, faith without works is dead. James was real practical. He's the stepbrother of Jesus. And uh, he heard Jesus preach and teach. And so he said, I know what my, my brother would say. A lot of people are going to say, I have faith, but if there's no action with that faith, you don't really have living faith. So repentance is a, an act to show that your faith is real. So I have talked to people that had prayed a prayer, but because they didn't repent, they didn't turn from their sin, they just brought their sin with them, and they're then they didn't experience any change. They said, well, saying it didn't work. I prayed that prayer and nothing happened. Jesus, in Mark chapter 1, when he starts preaching and he preaches the gospel, here's, here's how Jesus preached. 
The time is fulfilled, Jesus said, Mark chapter 1. The kingdom of God is at hand. That's him. I'm here. The kingdom is at hand, present. Now, what should you do? Repent and believe in the gospel. Repentance is still an important step for you. That might be something that you need to think about. It's never too late to repent of your sin. And that might be what's quenching the spirit in your life. Paul will write that in Thessalonians. He'll say, sin will quench the spirit. Like a fire that you put a wet blanket on, it quenches the fire. Your unrepented sin will quench the spirit. So you won't experience the fullness of the spirit. You won't experience the joy. You'll be here singing the songs, but there's no life. There's no energy because your sin, you're still bringing it with you. Jesus wants you to repent, wants you to turn from it. Anybody here know, been in the, know about the 12 steps, AA? Anybody familiar with uh, the big book and that kind of thing? Yeah. Uh, basically, all that big book, the 12 steps, are just steps of repentance. So they don't tell people, you should stop drinking, and the people come to the meeting and go, you're right, I should stop drinking. Let's all, we all agree we're going to stop. Okay, let's go out. And uh, hey, you want to go to the bar? Yeah, let's go have a drink. No. no. So step one is we'll stop drinking. It, you'll never get clean and sober till you stop drinking. Then you have to get a sponsor, and then you have to come to meetings. Some people have to come to meetings every day for 30 days, and they go another, they go 60 days, and they give them a little chip. Hey, you made 60 days, you made 90 days. That's repentance. In other words, they were taking steps to turn away from their sin. Christian, there may be something in your life that Jesus wants you to repent from. Repent just means turn around. So you're going this way, and it's not working. It's because you've got your little pet sin with you. I've had plenty. I speak from experience. It's a, it's a sobering thing to be a pastor and know that you've got this little pet sin that nobody knows about. It's a sobering thing. It's convicting. It's miserable. So you're going this way, and then you say, all right, I'm giving this to you, Lord. And you repent, and you turn, and you turn, and the power of the Spirit gives new life to you. And you go, why did I wait so long? Why did I wait so long? So the Ninevites, the king didn't say, let's have a big worship service. Hey, everybody love God. Yeah, we love God. Okay, God, we're sorry. Okay, please forgive us. No, he said, we're going to do something. And that might be the message for you tonight, dear one. Maybe there's something you need to do as an act of repentance from your sin from your old life that shows God, Jesus, my faith is more than just words. My faith is more than just words. My faith has legs. There's teeth in my faith. It's never too late to repent of our sin. Never too late. Doesn't mean you'll be perfect. Doesn't mean you'll never sin again. But there are those moments when you say, God, I'm turning from this. I've had friends uh, confide to me of a relationship that they knew was not honoring to God. It was, uh, we just had a very well-known, wonderful pastor, famous, written books, launched ministries, and uh, he's had to step away from his pulpit because he had to repent of an unhealthy relationship he had online with a woman. I love that he repented before all was lost, his marriage, the church. So anybody can get caught up in this 
And some action is usually required, some decision, some turning, some laying something down, or saying no, or saying goodbye, stepping away, giving something up. All that matters to God. He's watching that, and he honors that. And the Spirit rushes in. I'm going to cheat a little bit, Corey, on your material for next week as I close. Uh, in chapter 4, can everybody just cheat and look with me at chapter 4? You'll forget by the time Corey's here next week anyway, so you won't. Uh, Jonah chapter 4. Jonah says, what verse is it? Uh, like verse... Two. This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew, are you everybody with me? Uh, verse 2, Jonah saying to God, I didn't want to do this. I went the other way because I knew this is what you are like. And this, this line, this description of God is, pops up seven times in the Old Testament. So this is a pretty, in fact, God will use these words to Moses when he tells Moses, this is who I am. Listen to this. This is, I know this is who you are, Jonah says. You're gracious and merciful. You're slow to anger. You're abounding in steadfast love. You are gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Seven times in the Old Testament, a couple times God says about himself, that's who God the Father is. I hope that's your view of him. Merciful, gracious, he doesn't have his arms like this, like, oh, there she is again, trying to be religious. But I know. Oh, there he is again. Look at him singing those songs. But I, No, he's not like that. That's the devil. The devil loves to shame you, beat you up, make you feel terrible. God loves you. God's delighted you're here. He's delighted you're his. And he's full of mercy. He would, he would much rather pour mercy and love and grace on you than anything else. Because it's his nature, it's his character. And sometimes when we're honest with him about sin and repent, oh, it allows the waves of his grace to flow in fresh ways. And that's what he wants. He loves you, he longs to bless you. And sometimes we're the one quenching the avenue of his grace. Make sense? Oh, God loves you. I don't know why. I mean, I'm looking at you. I don't get why he loves you. <laughs> but he does. He really loves you. And who you are going to be on the other side is going to be mind-blowing. Mind-blowing. And what's coming. And who you are. And this is just the first age of many ages to come. Right now, you are an eternal being having a human experience. But you're an eternal being. You don't die. You'll just shed this human experience and we go to a whole nother age. And, I mean, you think about how big the universe is. What in the world does he have planned? What's out? Yeah, what's out there? Star Wars will be like, oh, that's chicken feed. There's the reality. Man, we're flying, going, creating. Yeah. Don't leave here for a moment not knowing you are loved, you are known. He is with you, and all he wants to do is give you his best. That's all he wants to do. 
and I find I'm usually the obstacle. Not him, me. Repentance many times can be the key to unlock that. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, I feel so inadequate to these great truths. Whoa, thank you for your word. Thank you for this book of Jonah, this wild whale tale that is really about you and your sovereign pursuit of sinners and reluctant preachers and prophets and terrible people who suddenly get it and repent and you bless. Lord, expand our heart and vision for who you are and who you love and how you want to bless us. Give us great hope tonight, I pray, to the glory of Jesus. Amen.